Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this inaugural lecture, Professor Christine Griffin explores drinking, music, having fun and stuff. The importance of identity and belonging in young people's lives. Well, thanks very much and uh, welcome to uh, colleagues, friends, family, students and also a special thanks to Caroline uh, Ransford and Dawn Cox who've done a lot of work organising this event. Um, I, uh, the, uh, the event itself was oversubscribed and someone here who shall be nameless suggested that I should do a sort of like take that on tour, which I choose to take as a compliment. Um, and I hope that all the topics uh, on that slide uh, today, which is quite a challenge, um, and my research is rather unusual in comparison with other social psychology that's conducted in some other universities and some other psychology departments. I've always talked to people and listened to what they've had to say and explored this in the context of their everyday lives. And I've always been interested in understanding young people's lives from their perspectives, but also I've just looked just as hard uh, the ways in which wider adult society, including academic researchers, sometimes view young people, maybe as at, uh, at risk, or as problems, or as troubling, a cause for concern. And my first degree uh, was somewhat unusual. Uh, it was at, in human psychology at the University of Aston in Birmingham. I was one of only ten students taking the very first degree course. Um, and, well, <laughs> um, and the course focused on applied social psychology, environmental psychology, at a time when most other courses were looking at things like behaviourism, animal behaviour, biological aspects of psychology. And then after that, I started a PhD at the University of Birmingham with Mick Billig. I was his first PhD student. And... To some degree, neither of us were quite sure what we were doing. So many of our supervision sessions involved a lot of extremely bad jokes and puns. Um, but those of you who know Mick's work on humour will know that he takes jokes very seriously as a reflection of feelings and thoughts and ideas that are um, too, too difficult, too dangerous, just plain nasty um, to be spoken about explicitly. And for my PhD, I wanted to investigate uh, social identity, particularly women's identities, because at the time, this was the late 70s, um, most social psychology research, most psychology research, really involved only male American college students. Um, and the main theory of social psychology at the time was Henri Tajfeld's work Bristol down the road, looking at in-groups and out-groups. Um, what he saw uh, as in-groups, he meant those social groups we feel we belong to, and out-groups as those social groups we feel we don't belong to. And we, he argued that we tend to view the groups we feel we belong to in-groups more positively than groups we feel we don't belong to. And those in and out groups can be based on gender, race, class, nationality, or smaller scale, more informal groups like friendships. And Tajfel 
proposed a range of psychological and social strategies that we can use to, um, if, we, if we belong to a social group that is ostracised or deemed inferior or discriminated against or oppressed in some way, there are different strategies he proposed we can use to keep a positive view of our, uh, our in-groups. And I wasn't sure whether Tarshfeld's approach applied to women. And I wanted to talk to women about what being female meant to them, how they dealt with being treated as second-class citizens, if they felt they were treated as second-class citizens. Um, but I faced two problems at the time. Was The first was that my ideas were influenced by feminist theory, but those ideas hadn't really had an impact on the academy, certainly not in social psychology at that time. And, and the second was methodologically. I wanted to use more informal interview methods, but it really wasn't possible to do that in social psychology at that time. My PhD supervisor was interviewing members of the National Front uh, at the time, informally as, as part of a project about ideologies of racism and fascism. But I, as a PhD student, it was difficult for me to use the same methods. So I ended up using a mixture of experimental methods and sort of open-ended questionnaires for my PhD, which left me feeling a bit frustrated. And then a rather unusual job came up at a place called the Centre for Contemporary Cultural Studies at Birmingham University, always known as the Centre. And this was a project about young women leaving school and entering the job market. And I applied and got the job, and that kept me in academia, really. Um, because the centre was also quite unusual. First, it was run on collective lines, uh, or it tried to be. The second aspect was that it engaged a lot with local communities, with schools, colleges, uh, youth work, um, women's groups, both in teaching and research. We would now call that impact, but then it was just what, what they did. It was quite unusual. And it was founded on a progressive pr political principles based on Marxist and feminist uh, and uh, anti-racist ethos. So quite unusual. Um, and the centre was a place of considerable tension, heated debate. I was there in the early 80s when Margaret Thatcher had just become Prime Minister, so there was a lot going on. Um, and it, it's one of the most stimulating university departments I've ever worked in. So I'd seen my PhD supervisor using informal interview methods, so I knew it could be done. And here were a lot of people at the centre using similar methods, and it was at cultural studies where I learned how to do this sort of work and thus how to begin to interpret this sort of uh, material. So as a, although I've always viewed myself as a social psychologist, my work's always been interdisciplinary. It's quite difficult in a talk like this to do justice to the sort of work that I do. So all I can do really is give you a flavour um, of the sort of um, material that's come out of the projects um, that I've been involved in. So the project, the Young Women and Work project, um, at the time most youth research was also dominated by studies of young men. And young women appeared as somehow different, somehow deviant. Their experiences didn't fit the theories. Um, 
And I got a sense of how they were viewed early on in the project when one headmaster of a school that I was visiting to interview fifth form girls, before I'd even talked to anybody, he took me into his study. This was in Birmingham, a small mixed-sex comprehensive in 1980. And he told me that my study would be a waste of time because, as he put it, most of our fifth form girls will end up as prostitutes like their mothers. So I was incensed by this. Um, so the project itself um, involved... The first stage was a, a series of group discussions with about 180 fourth formers, fifth formers and sixth formers from six different Birmingham state schools, uh, mainly girls but some boys who wanted to take part because they wanted to see what they were missing and get out of some lessons. Um, also their teachers. Um, and then the second phase was some follow-up visits over two years with 25 uh, young women leaving fifth forms, mainly white and working class, with relatively few academic qualifications, and also as case studies uh, <coughs> of ten different workplaces. So, no questionnaires, uh, no statistics, all interviews and observation. And this was finally written up uh, as a book called Typical Girls, which came out in 1985. And um, in that book, I argued that there wasn't any equivalent for, the, for girls and young women to the sort of gang of lads model that pervaded other research about young people and young men moving from school to the job market. Because for these young women, they negotiated the move from school to the job market in the context of a, a sort of parallel imperative to get a boyfriend. Um, so they were generally destined for a fairly restricted range of jobs that were viewed as appropriate for young women from their background, their educational and class background. So semi and unskilled factory work, shop work, office work, uh, sort of beauty services like hairdressing, but all low paid and low status. And they were expected to leave employment after a few years to start a family. So, there, uh, I'll talk about the asylum in a moment. Um, their position in school and in the job market was partly shaped by these assumptions about their presumed future domestic roles as wives and mothers. And um, it was their, their position in the job market was assumed to be temporary. Although some of them, many of them actually didn't see it that way. Uh, this actually, the asylum is a sign uh, at the side of a, a house in Bath, but it doesn't date from the 1980s, it's rather earlier. Um, and some of the young women that I talked to, one of the case studies, um, had taken advantage of a scheme at the time to encourage girls to go into engineering. These were the only group that actually identified as, as feminist much to the horror of the male supervising his running course, might add. Um, and the other is a postcard from something I was doing at the time, which was youth work um, with girls' groups, which I won't talk about at any length of time, but it's sort of parallel to the research project. 
The other things that I were in, was involved with at the time was um, two parallel things. The first, when the book Typical Girls was, was published, I was one of relatively few psychologists using qualitative research methods, um, although there are other <coughs> exceptions at the time, and one was the Vice-Chancellor, Clinton Sprague, I can't be here this evening, Suzanne Skevington and Helen Haste, all linked to the University of Bath. And I was also one of the first in social psychology to apply knowledge gained from feminist theory and practice to my research uh, on the experiences of girls and women. So I contributed a chapter to Feminist Social Psychology, edited by Sue Wilkinson, which came out in 1986, the first book of its kind, really, and was also on the editorial group of Feminism and Psychology, which is a journal that um, first came out in 1991, now very successful. We met for two years planning it. Most journals would uh, sort of operate going much more quickly than that. Uh, it was almost like we had to imagine the journal into being first. And my next book, Representations of Youth, which I haven't got a slide of because the cover is so boring. I had a big battle with the publishers and I lost. Um, <laughs> over the title as well, something completely different. Um, that came out in 1993, and that was a review of the, the ways in which both academic research and policy in the 1980s, both in Britain and the USA, treated and viewed youth and young people and adolescents as particular sorts of problems, particular groups of young people being seen as either in trouble or troubling in different sorts of ways. And I was also interested in the ways in which young people's experiences might operate in one domain, but academic and policy discourses uh, operate in, in another domain, and the two don't always meet, or they overlap in quite difficult ways. Um, and young people are often viewed as a, a sort of holding the key to the nation's future, which is quite a heavy burden to carry. So... The main focus of the talk really is on a set of studies that I've been carrying out over the past uh, 10 years or more. Um, and some of the issues I'm going to be talking about might seem rather inconsequential or ephemeral because they revolve around young people's leisure activities. Um, drinking, dancing, music, having fun, and the right brand of trainers. Um, are not generally taken as seriously as education and employment, family life, politics, with a capital P. Um, but in some contexts, and for some young people, these issues can be at least as important, if not more so, um, than jobs and education and politics, with a capital P. And I hope to illustrate what I mean by that. Um, and by stuff... I mean the ways in which the ownership and the display and the use of consumer goods can act as a sort of means of expressing yourself, positioning yourself, being positioned by others, something that we all do all the time. But children and young people, well all of us, are living in a global media culture which revolves around being seen and being judged according to how one looks the stuff one has, or maybe doesn't have, 
and watching and judging others according to similar criteria. And children and young people have grown up in this culture. It's completely normal and unremarkable. And by social identity, or by identity, I mean how we see ourselves and others, how we position ourselves and other people, how we are positioned by others, and by social institutions, sometimes whether we like it or not, um, which social groups we feel we belong to, what the significance of that is, what groups we feel excluded from, <laughs> and um, how, where we feel we belong in society, uh, and what the psychological and social implications of that might be. So I want to start by talking about uh, a project I worked on actually quite soon after coming to Bath, um, with Agnes Nairn and uh, Patricia Guy-Wicks, both of whom were in the School of Management at Bath at the time. Um, and we were interested uh, in children aged 7 to 11 um, and the role that black brands played in their everyday lives. And a lot of the research, particularly in the sort of marketing uh, domain, tended to use uh, research methods that assumed that there were certain sorts of brands that were significant to children or young people and assumed that they'd see things in a certain sort of way and we wanted to take a step back and find out what the sort of baseline of children's uh, knowledge and understanding was. So we started off um, with just two junior schools. It was a study funded actually by the Faculty of Humanities and Social Sciences here at the university. Um, one state school, one private school, um, 12 groups of six children, but either age 7 to 8 or age 10 and 11. And we began by asking them um, just to brainstorm and to talk about what things are kids in your class into at the moment um, and to see what they said. And then the next stage was to ask them, well, which of these things, these brands, are cool and not cool, which were their terms, not ours, um, and then pick out 14 brands uh, which generated the most discussion and came up the most often as a focus for the second stage, which were uh, discussion with an, another set of 16 groups of three to four children, so quite small groups from the same two schools and the same two um, age groups. So we were interested uh, in getting a sense of what children, both working class and middle class children, different backgrounds, uh, made, how they made sense of the country in which they were living. And these are the 14 brands that uh, some of you might have heard of some of these. And some of you might have. <laughs> I won't go through them all. One of the things we were uh, interested... I won't do a quiz. Um, <laughs> one of the things we were interested in was the number of people here. Um, so Beckham, Britney Spears, at the time, Busted and McFly, two boy bands were engaged in a big rival battle. Um, but there was a sense in which uh, people were branded celebrities, and it was not an issue for young people, for children to talk about um, people as brands. 
there were some gender differences and there were some differences, I think probably class differences between the state school and the private school, which I haven't got time to go into in, in much detail. Um, but one of the things that stayed with me was an eight-year-old girl from the private school, who, and the children from that school tended to have less familiarity with uh, brands generally. Uh, and she said in one of the interviews, the focus groups, um, that of all, all the people that we've been talking about, all the brands that we've been talking about, the only one she'd heard of was David Beckham. And that was why she had no friends. Um, and that has stayed with me as one of the most tragic things every, anyone has ever said. Um, so, Bex. Um, Beckham was really interesting because there was uh, quite a lot of discussion about Beckham, but back and forth, he, he encapsulated a lot of quite contradictory um, discourses and ways of thinking about moral issues, really. So he's an 11-year-old boy from a, a single-sex group in the, the boys' school. Um, I won't read all these. Can everyone see that? Say no if you can't. I won't read them all ever. Um, but he's talking about the way in which Beckham was uh, facing up to a difficult situation. This was an incident in uh, the 1998 World Cup. So this boy would have been two or three at the time. He hardly watched it himself. It was either replays or something that had been discussed in his, his family. Um, so he's using Beckham to talk about the, the way in which Beckham faced up to something that other people might not have, might have run away from. Fantastic. Um, uh, here's a boy, 11-year-old boy in a mixed group in a state school talking about uh, the quite sophisticated notion that you can try too hard to look handsome. Um, rather like the natural look in women's makeup, it should appear to be effortless uh, and natural. Um, and this is a, a group of girls and boys, a year six group in the state school, uh, with a real difference of opinion between a girl this is typical um, so girl two <laughs> and a boy no that's scary don't say that just a look he is FIT so this is typical actually of the sorts of things that are going on so children's engagement with this seemingly remote branded celebrity of Beckham enabled them to discuss quite complex moral issues. And it wasn't that they had um, sort of ideas of good and bad set in stone. Their discussions were characterised by being contested, um, dealing with ambivalence. Um, they're negotiated but closely linked to popular media culture. Now I want to go on to look at another study earlier, actually, uh, but it follows sort of chronologically uh, in terms of young people being a bit older. <coughs> this is a study I was involved in in uh, 2000 to 2005. So it started off when I was in Birmingham, but carried on uh, into Bath when I moved to Bath. And it's a three-year project funded by the Economic and Social Research Council. 
um, working with Anne Phoenix at the Open University and the researchers Janine Hunter and Rosalind Crohn. We were interested in what identity, what, what consumption of stuff, consuming, owning, displaying, um, possessing, not having stuff meant for uh, young people. This would be in the 11 to 16 year old room. And also negotiations between parents and teenagers in households about money and stuff, which I won't uh, talk about today, but that's a whole other minefield. Um, and also how those sorts of issues varied uh, around gender and class uh, and, and uh, ethnicity and for different age groups. So this was a, a much bigger study. Um, we carried out, we did have a sort of open-ended questionnaire phase in 23 different state schools in Birmingham, Milton Keynes, around Oxford. So sort of city centre, new town, small town, uh, schools somewhere on the edges of Oxford and Milton Keynes in different parts of the city. Um, involving 12, 11, 12, 13-year-olds and 15 to 17-year-olds. And we asked um, young people, name three things that you got recently or have bought for you, describe them and say what they mean to you. And then we followed that up with semi-structured informal group discussions um, with over 300 young people in all of these schools. We gave out disposable cameras, those what was all you had in those days, to young people. We asked them to, to take photos of their favourite things, and then we could uh, talk about them in interviews later. Most of them took photographs of each other in the playground. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then we interviewed parents and their children. And we also um, sort of went out with young people, that either hanging around shopping centres and being chased out, um, or Janine actually went to all, I think it was five or seven, um, Girl Heaven and Claire's accessory shops in the new Birmingham Bullring one afternoon with a group of three girls. Um, so I want to focus here on just some interview extracts from those 60 group discussions just in some of the schools to give you a flavour um, of some of this work. And most of the young people we're talk I'll be talking about this today are um, mainly from working class backgrounds with a range of different um, access to sort of personal disposable income from nothing at all to more than £50 a week for a few of them, but most far less than that. So here's a group of your 12 girls, Milton Keynes State School, uh, talking about the importance of wearing the right stuff um, and being picked on. Um, and of course you can't necessarily read this off as though these events all actually happen. It's more the way in which young people uh, see these issues and the way they negotiate them. So even with a uniform, um, and actually observational work does support this, um, but for young people and, and children, even with a uniform, there are differences that they would notice, and you could end up with the wrong sort of stuff. Um, 
And one of the things that emerged was something we called style failure, which is um, young people, this is a year eight group, talking about a particular girl who, who didn't take care of herself, she didn't brush her hair, and then she moans because she gets picked on. It's her fault. So R.C. is Rosaline, the researcher, uh, you say people who don't care about their appearance get picked on. Yes, it's not to do with money, no. So a tendency to blame people who are the young people who just can't manage to keep up with the right style. Um, so Birmingham, year 12, Milton Keynes, year 8, similar sorts of issues. And both boys and girls would talk like this. Um, so a recognition that it was a problem and it was partly because you didn't have enough money. But then when it came to it, they're tramps. She brings it on herself. But as Trina says, I would hate that to happen to me. Um, so constructing others as style failures served an important function for, for young people because the implicit construction was of the speakers as successful in contrast. Because the high social costs of not fitting in and the rewards of being popular were considerable. So to some degree, it's hardly surprising that young people are talking like this. So to, um, there's a sort of moral uh, cost to not managing uh, to, uh, to, do, to have the right stuff. And, of course, poverty and limited access to the material resources necessary um, to have the right stuff can severely limit young people's opportunities to take up the, these identities. So not being seen to have got the right stuff was, was very important. And because in the last decade there's been an increasing division between work-rich and work-poor households, as they're, they're called, these sorts of issues have, if anything, got more intense. So the next study I want to look at um, is not about stuff, but booze. Um, the next project I um, worked on was looking at young people's, young adults' alcohol consumption, which, of course, is a highly profitable business, which makes a great deal of money uh, for alcohol companies and a lot of other uh, people around the world. And it also generates a lot of alarmist headlines all the time, just regularly. Um, so young people's drinking's been a major um, focus for concern um, for a long time. And we're interested in a, a new culture of uh, intoxication, as it's called, that's emerged really in the past 15 years. And this is a project also funded by the ESRC, based in Bath and in Birmingham. Um, and I worked with Willem Mistral, um, Isabel Schmiegen, Birmingham Business School, Chris Hackley, um, now at the University of London, and the researchers, Andrew Bengry-Howell and David Clark, and Louise Wheel, who is a bad placement student. So what we were interested in um, was young people's drinking cultures. And this is a, a quote from one of several um, international studies comparing uh, young people's self-reported alcohol consumption, uh, different age groups, um, arguing that teenagers in the UK are more likely to get drunk than almost anywhere else in the industrial world. That sort of 
uh, sort of overegging it a bit, but in the UK we, we are fairly high up uh, in terms of both self-reported drinking, alcohol consumption and, uh, um, and, and sales. So the research indicates there's a, there's a polarisation of drinking patterns. Um, young people have been drinking more and drinking stronger stuff and alcohol is more available for all of us. I mean, we've all been drinking more and drinking stronger alcohol, but so have young people, both underage and legal age drinkers. Um, really, since the mid-1990s, there's been a, a more recent sort of plateauing off, but behind that is this polarisation. So that some young people are drinking more, and others are drinking less or abstaining. So those who do drink more. And there's a recent um, assessment by the Independent Scientific Committee on Drugs, um, chaired by David Nutt, that rated alcohol as the most harmful drug in the UK. So in terms of the harms it does um, to users and others, it's right up there. But of course, for many young people, it's also associated with pleasure and lots of fun. The other things that have changed are the places we might drink. Um, and most young people would refer to that as an old man's pub. Um, and these sorts of bars absolutely aimed at young people. Um, more female friendly, different products, different opening times. Uh, the nighttime economy in towns and cities across the UK completely transformed over the past 10 years. Some towns and cities have so-called wild zones, which are really for young drinkers. Um, and anyone over probably 35 just doesn't go in them. Um, so this is sometimes called a culture of intoxication, where Getting very drunk on a fairly regular basis is just seen as the norm. It's what you do. Um, so more drink, more stronger drinks, cheap shots, um, and boo cheap booze deals aimed at young people. But we were interested in what that meant for young people from their perspective. I won't go into all of um, this work, but part of what we were interested in was how alcohol was marketed young people, so we looked at alcohol ads, and I'll, I'll mention some of those. But we also did uh, 14, again, informal group discussions with young women and men, 18 to 25, uh, in three different sites, large city in the English Middle Midlands, two towns in the southwest of England. We've, we've changed the names because it might be possible to identify venues and therefore people, um, and some case studies um, of young people's drinking. We didn't actually go out drinking all night long with young people. It was very difficult to negotiate this, as Andrew and um, David and the researchers would, would test. They tended to sort of push the researchers to the side early on in the night, which was about 10 or 11 o'clock. Um, so, just a flavour of the sorts of things I talked about. Um, I think the whole point of going out is socialising and the drink is next. And then Helen, uh, if I did go on my own, that's a bit alcoholic-y. 
So drinking on your own was associated with alcohol problems, but drinking in a group, however much you drank, was seen to sort of insulate you from the idea you might have a problem. Um, the group is terribly important. We have such a laugh getting ready together, which is also known as pre-lashing or pre-loading, because you drink quite a lot getting ready together, particularly young women. You don't have to be drunk to do that, but it's fun. Um, but being in a group, having a laugh, just very important. But also, uh, a recognition that this is risky. So this is a, nurse, a group of nursing college students uh, talking about uh, the risks, potentially scary risks. Uh, drinking is like counting the bruises the next day. Um, and also not remembering. So very pervasive just assumption that it's quite common to maybe black out, not remember, wake up in your own vomit, <coughs> go to A&E. Um, but the group uh, is seen to, you know, you look after each other and we wouldn't ever let anything happen. Of course, in practice, there were also lots of stories of getting lost, losing your friends, being out with your friends and they go off with someone else. Here's a group of young men uh, from a, a FE college. Uh, this is Joe talking about somebody who is the voice of good reason. He's talking about somebody who isn't affected by alcohol. He doesn't mean somebody who doesn't drink. He means somebody who isn't affected. Um, because he's like a voice of good reason, he'll say, you know, but Callum points out that if you are the voice of good reason, sometimes... Um, but a sense that um, some you get a bit, some people tend to get a bit leery, um, and they can, you know, this sensible person can diffuse the situation. So the risks for young men were talked about in terms of physical assault or getting in a fight. Although getting in a fight could be fun, but it was also seen as a risk. And for young women, it was associated with. A, more with a risk of sexual assault or harassment. Um, and here's a group of young uh, women university students that we talk about freshers and the first year, um, and a sense that because they didn't get drunk, they didn't have a fount of funny stories to share, and this kept them uh, on the edge of their um, friendship group. In the, uh, university. So you have to have done something stupid, uh, and that produces the drinking stories. So getting drunk was represented as, as central to their social lives, and getting drunk was also represented as risky, but as, as fun. Um, and the group was very important, and of course the drinks industry knows this. So here's an example of some uh, ads for uh, well-known, um, anybody know the one at the bottom? So you don't have to say Bacardi, the logo says it all. Um, very much aimed at young people. Um, but, of course, um, there are important implications here for safer or healthier drinking campaigns um, because such campaigns can 
uh, aimed at change individuals' behaviour without focusing uh, on the importance of drinking for the group. So generally a sort of harm minimisation approach is, uh, is the most appropriate, but it isn't a level playing field because um, the alcohol industry spends, it's estimated, around £800 million a year promoting its products and the comparable spend on health education campaigns is just a drop in the ocean. Um, so uh, it's an it's a area of research I'm, I'm still interested in. I'll, I'll return to that in a moment. And I want to just talk about a, a few projects in a much uh, less depth. Um, one, uh, well, there's two actually related to... Um, music festivals and free parties and dance and club culture. One, the Reverberating Rhythms uh, project with Sarah Riley, who's uh, recently moved from uh, Bath to Aberystwyth, and also with Yvette Maury, which was from 2005 to 2007. I won't talk about that in any depth. And the Music Festivals and Free Parties project, um, which was led by uh, Andrew Bengry Howell, uh, and I was a mentor with Isabel Schmiegel and Sarah Riley. And Yvette Maury was uh, the researcher, so Andrew and Yvette really did the bulk of the, um, the research, also funded by the ESRC uh, from 2007 to 2010. And the reason that we were interested in um, this was that these are 18 to 25-year-olds again, and this is the, some of the context in which they're doing some of the um, drinking and other forms of consumption that we talked about a moment ago. But these sorts of spaces are commercialised in very different sorts of ways. So music festivals particularly um, have become increasingly expensive uh, and become like mega events over the past few years. Um, and actually, although there are around 500 music festivals in the UK uh, every year, most are owned or have a heavy involvement with just a couple of multinational uh, companies. One of them, Live Nation, also runs most of the acts and owns the ticketing franchises. So, huge numbers of uh, uh, different uh, posters available. Um, so many of the bigger festivals charge about 150 to 200 pounds a ticket for a weekend, um, and there's lots of other costs associated with that. Um, many are now brands in themselves, very popular, tie-ins with ex um, um, with particular brands of alcohol, um, fences around them. You can't some you can't bring your own alcohol in, so you've got to consume everything on site, and. Uh, <coughs> There's certainly a sense in which um, uh, punters are encouraged to get, let's get lashed, get loaded in the park to consume. Um, and free parties are very different. Free parties are often illegal, um, often because of the restrictive, restrictive licensing laws that have emerged since the Criminal Justice Act in '94. But partygoers are encouraged, uh, or equally likely to be involved in the production and the consumption. They bring along stuff, um, they hold them in different sorts of places, um, 
and everybody's involved. So there are different sorts of events. The same sort of activities might be going on, but in very different sorts of ways. So music festivals are highly managed spaces, and we're interested in the way they're marketed as sites where young people can be free to be themselves, authentically express themselves. But that freedom and that sense of belonging, which is something that really comes out from the interviews with people who go regularly to festivals, are being commodified and sold to young people as part of the experience um, that they're buying. So, the other thing that I've become more interested in recently is um, young people's uses of social media and the way that belonging uh, can happen uh, through things like Facebook and the way in which that is linked to drinking. Um, so this is not <laughs> too unlikely. Um, so during the past year, I've been involved in a project in New Zealand, which I'm interested in doing something similar in the UK, where we're looking at young people, again, legal-age drinkers, um, from Pākehā or white, Māori and uh, Samoan groups, um, and the way in which their, their drinking cultures are related to their uses of social media, and also to a pervasive celebrity culture where everybody, you know, you take photographs of each other when you're drunk or they're drunk and you post them up somewhere on their Facebook page and whether they agree or even know about it or not. Um, so we're interested in the ways in which social media affect these the, uh, young people's sense of belonging, their friendship groups. Uh, and I've become increasingly interested in young women drinking. Um, because things have changed in the past 15, 20 years. Since I was doing the typical girls study, it was common for young women to talk about not drinking uh, as a way of, no, no, I don't drink. And it was, it was okay to say that. And that was the norm, actually. I mean, young women would drink, but it was more acceptable for them to say they didn't. But nowadays, young women are called on to be part of this culture of intoxication alongside young men, but it's not the same. They're expected to be sassy and independent and assertive, but not feminist, to be up for it, to get drunk alongside young men, but not to drink like men. But being drunk, it's still viewed as more acceptable for young men. <coughs> so drunkenness in women is still viewed as unfeminine. And they often, not always, you know, not all young women do get drunk and not all um, go around in sort of glamorous, sexy, uh, skimpy clothes, high heels, short skirts. But that, there's a sort of hypersexual form of femininity which is very pervasive on the night out. But being nice and respectable is viewed as boring, lightweight, but nobody wants to be seen as a slut. So, and it's very difficult to walk. I don't know if anyone's going to try to walk six inch heels. But it's difficult to walk in a pair of sixes. But when you've had a load of shots, um, it's nigh on impossible. So there are many...
contradictions. Um, and I am just, I'm interested both in the, the ways those contradictions make femininity like an impossible place to be, impossible to do it properly. But young women have to negotiate it, so how do they manage to negotiate this impossible space? Um, and there are also many, there are class differences here because young working class women are more likely to be the ones who get seen and treated as sluts. Um, so how do young middle class and young working class women negotiate this terrain? And then there's celebrity culture. So Befuddle, for those of you who don't know it, is the home of drunk celebs. And there are loads of these. Uh, there are also lots of uh, Facebook groups just called Drunk, where <coughs> your people will post up photographs of themselves and each other drunk. So it's sort of a similar sorts of images, but I mean, those are just the A's on the side. Those of you at the back might never see. So you can click on um, all sorts of celebs beginning with A through to Z. Almost all of them are female. Um, there is a Prince William and a few Prince Harrys, but almost all of them are female. Um, so there's also, alongside uh, the way young women might negotiate this impossible space of femininity in the, in the culture of intoxication, there's this background of, of this sort of judgmental look and entertainment uh, focusing on drunken celebs. So what might be the significance of all of this for young people's lives now? And I'm interested in the ways in which this relates to uh, what social theorists sometimes talk about as neoliberalism or late modernity. Um, and uh, Beck and Beck Gernsheim have talked of this uh, in quite a sort of stark way. Um, this is a quote, each of us is expected and forced to lead our own life outside of the bounds of any particular community or group. So the argument is in contemporary culture, particularly in affluent <coughs> post-industrial societies, traditional anchors of identity like class, occupation, neighbourhood have become increasingly less stable and that we are called on to produce ourselves, to position ourselves, to see ourselves through consumption increasingly, but also as individuals and autonomous individuals. And uh, I also have drawn on the work of Nick Rose. Um, contemporary individuals are incited to live as if making a project of themselves, to work on their emotional world, their domestic and conjugal arrangements, their relations with employment, their techniques of sexual pleasure, to develop a style of living that will maximise the worth of their existence existence to themselves. So for young people, Neil, this particular approach argues that they're called on, we all are, to display themselves as discerning consumers, as ethical, as responsible, as moral beings. And if anyone behaves in ways that are seen to be excessive, unhealthy, irresponsible, undisciplined, this is seen as a moral failure of the self. And there's quite a lot of evidence now from all over 
of the world, certainly all over Western Europe, Eastern Europe, uh, North America, Australasia, that young people, children and young people, um, are, take, this is taking a particular toll because if something goes wrong, it's their fault. Um, and the focus on the individual paradoxically means that the group and belonging to a group becomes very important, more important in a way. So when young people talk about um, belonging to a group, it's I want to understand it in this wider social context as a sort of coping mechanism, but also a sort of resistance, but something that's very important. And it's something that marketers know is very important. So, anybody know the brand? Harley. Nobody's, you know, it's not there. All they need belong. And the logo. And we know there's no alcohol, there's nothing consumed. But very powerful, well, a powerful image. Don't know how powerful it is in terms of... Um, the, uh, the alcohol consumption. <coughs> so, I hope I've given you a flavour, finally, of the various projects I've been involved in, just some of them, over the past 30 years. And I should say I started when I was 12. <laughs> and I do also owe a real debt of gratitude to the many colleagues I've worked with, and I've really not been able to talk about all of them. Um, and also the undergrad and postgrad students that I've taught and supervised, and I'm still supervising. And to the children and young people and their parents and teachers and youth workers um, that have been involved in the studies that I've talked about. And I haven't been able to mention all of the research that I've been involved in, but I did want to mention two in particular. Um, one involves a study with Jeff Gavin. Um, from psychology, um, looking at the ways in which online dating shapes the construction of our online selves. And the other is with Andy Brown from Bath Spa University in the corner on representations of social class in reviews of heavy metal music. And I want to end by highlighting one of the pleasures of doing this sort of research, which can involve fairly close engagement with participants <laughs> in their everyday lives. And this is me as a metal fan, um, but also as an observer and participant uh, at an Iron Maiden gig. Um, so this wasn't a formal research project, but it was a sort of preliminary pilot research, and by no means as an 18 to 25. <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave it there, and thank you very much for listening.